cruising through. We've made our way through Romans to 1 Corinthians. We're there tonight in 1 Corinthians, and we'll go through and look at um, we'll look at um, some uh, highlights there, as we all, always do, and we'll look at a outline of the book and uh, the chapters, pretty much chapter by chapter, uh, real quick overview, and then we're going to hit some highlights, as we always do, and spend a little time looking at some of the, the places in 1 Corinthians that... Um, are um, very important doctrinal matters. So as we make our way, it's kind of interesting as you look at the order of the books of the Bible and as we make our way through the Gospels and we made our way into the book of Acts. And we talked about how the book of Acts is not, um, you know, doctrine is not, not built there. It's, it's like it's on the move, so to speak. And Paul nails down New Testament doctrine beginning with the book of Romans. And so the main part of the book of Romans, at least the first several chapters, is salvation. And then we get to the point where he's talking about the practical Christian life. And well, even though he certainly mentions the gospel and salvation in other books after that, uh, most all of them have to do with uh, practical Christian living and things that they face in, as a church family and things they would face individually. And that's also true, of course, as we make our way into 1 Corinthians and so we could maybe call this, now this, this isn't phrases and found in Scripture, we try to come up with a phrase from each book that maybe is in Scripture, but the description for this book would be a manual for church problems because this church at Corinth, boy, they had them. They had a lot of problems. And uh, as we outline chapter by chapter, we'll see some of those uh, problems that they had to deal with as a church and why they had those problems. We'll look at that uh, when we do some highlights, look at some highlights tonight. There's 16 chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians, just as there's 16 in Romans, and it's uh, the second of Paul's longest letters that he writes uh, in the New Testament. And so 16 chapters of it. The time of writing, and I put Luke up there because of the fact that, um, as we know, we talked about Luke wrote the book of Acts, so Luke wrote at, uh, the Gospel of Luke somewhere around 58 to 60 A.D. And the time of events of the, uh, of the book of Acts was 33 to 65. And he, so he didn't write the book of Acts till like that last year as the, those events were ending, 65, 66, 67, somewhere in there. Um, and then 1 Corinthians was written by Paul. When we went through the book of Acts, we talked about his missionary journeys and we looked at the books that were written in, you know, during, the, during each of those journeys. Most of them were written in his third journey. And um, that's somewhere around Acts uh, 17, 18, 19 and there. And uh, 1 Corinthians was written on that third missionary journey as he was traveling. About 56 to 57 A.D., somewhere roughly like that. And then right after it, Lord willing, next week we'll study 2 Corinthians. We'll see that about that same time, not long after that, he wrote 2 Corinthians within a, probably a, a year, maybe a little less. And when he does, we see that he answers some problems and questions. Go with me over to the book of Acts uh, before we make our way to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let's look and see. This is one of the places that we see where this church... Um, as he writes a letter to them where they began, where they were founded, so to speak. And it's in chapter 18 um, of the book of Acts. And we won't read the whole thing for time's sake, uh, but I mean the whole 17 verses, the first 17 verses, uh, that's where we see it found. But we'll, we'll hit a few verses in there. So he's on his third missionary journey, um, it's, or he's about to start on his third journey. Uh, and this is where the, the church at Corinth begins. Corinth was a trade city in, um, 
it was uh, it was well known for it was very metropolitan, so to speak. You had a lot of different people from different backgrounds and cultures, and it was a trade city. There was a lot of money came through Corinth, and it says in chapter eighteen, start at verse one. After these things, Paul departed from Athens, uh, which is in Greece, and came to Corinth. Uh, let's go on another verse or two, and then we'll skip down. Look at verse two and three. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus. Lately come from Italy. So um, this man Aquila, he was uh, Jewish, but he wasn't probably born in Israel. I mean, he, he probably did, maybe had never been to Israel, uh, but he was born in Pontus. Um, and then it says, lately come from Italy. So um, he lived in Italy. You know, I don't know if he lived uh, um, anywhere near Rome at any time, but he did live in Italy. And it says with his wife Priscilla. And then it says, because the Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. So they were, you know, they left from that area and came unto them. So they left and went to uh, Corinth. And so just happened, they come across this man named Paul. Look at verse 3. And because he was the same craft, he abode with them, speaking of Paul, and wrought for, um, for by their occupation they were tent makers. So he was the same thing. Paul did that in his, uh, to make money for himself. He, he was a tent maker, um, and a lot of times they would not only make tents, they would repair tents that were, you know, in need of that. And so he come across these people and got to know them um, because they had the same trade. So he struck up a friendship with them, and maybe he personally led them to Christ there, but he definitely uh, got to know them, and, and they were, you know, they were either believers before they met Paul or they became believers and then it goes to mention, we won't read for time's sake, but somewhere there in Corinth, there was a synagogue. Of course, synagogue is where the Jews worship together. And so it mentions there how he was uh, there in the synagogue and mentions, uh, let's go to verse 8. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, be, uh, hearing, believed and were baptized. So there was a man named Crispus. He was over the synagogue, obviously a Jewish man. And he trusted the Lord as his Savior, believed in the Lord. And not only him, but all of his house that would be his and his wife and however many children or whoever else lived with him, they all got saved. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So this is when the church was born, so to speak. Um, and then um, go over, when you go over to uh, 1 Corinthians, look at um, chapter 1 and verse 14 of 1 Corinthians. And we'll go into our um, break down our chapters in a moment. But it says here in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. Some pronounce it Gaius or Gaius. So there's Crispus, Crispus mentioned. So he was a, one of the, uh, there, the Corinth, uh, Corinthian church. He was a believer there in Corinth. And he, of course, his background was Jewish. And so in Corinth, again, there were some that were Jews, some that were Gentile. Um, and after they got saved and became part of the body of Christ and, and uh, were meeting there at Corinth. So we see where that church began, where it was born, so to speak, where it began or was founded there in the book of Acts. So we're going to go through and do a quick highlight of each chapter. Uh, there's 16 of them. And then we'll take some time look, focusing on some, on some highlights in the book of 1 Corinthians. They had a lot of problems in Corinth, and uh, Paul writes this first letter to them, and then uh, so they um, so they uh, were corrected on some problems. Then he writes Second Corinthians to commend them for the fact that they had gotten some of these things right with the Lord and right with each other, and uh, he commends them for their faith. And um, in Second Corinthians, he's a lot more personal. Second uh, Corinthians, as we'll see, is Paul's most personal letter that he wrote. Uh, not only about himself, but as he writes to those believers. But 
before getting too far ahead of things, he had to confront a lot of problems. One is there were, there were divisive spirits within the church. And if you'll look with me at verse, um, look with me at verse, uh, let's see, pick up at verse 12. Now, I, this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul. And I am of Apollos, of Apollos, and I of Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter. He's also Simon. He has more than one name, but that's who Cephas is. That's, that's Peter. So some of the believers are saying, well, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm going to follow Paul. Well, I'm going to follow Apollos. We talked about him in the book of Acts when we studied there. Great story about him. And, or I'm, C, I'm of Cephas. I'm following Peter. And then there are some that are really spiritual say, well, I'm simply following Christ. You know, maybe they were, but there was a division among them. They were very divisive as, as a body of believers. And Paul writes about that and corrects them for that problem. We'll look at some verses about that a little bit later. Then they had, um, in chapter 2, um, they have the problem with worldly wisdom over God's wisdom. And uh, Paul tells them that, um, you know, God's wisdom is, is more important and talks to them about... Um, the, um, the spirit and power, verse 4, my speech and preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in a demonstration of spirit and of power. And then he uh, also in that chapter tells us the important, um, gives us the importance of the Holy Spirit to help us understand the word. Put a pen there. We're going to come back to that. Chapter 3 um, he deals with the problem of how they followed some of them. We, in verse one, or excuse me, chapter one, we saw the division. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, so forth, I'm of Christ. But he, he warns them about uh, following men too closely. Now, a little bit later, we're going to see a verse that almost seems like it contradicts that, but it doesn't. Uh, we're in chapter 11, verse 1. We'll come back to it in a moment, but where Paul says, follow me. As I follow Christ, but some of these were following men too closely, and that's a problem that's always been throughout church history. I mean, if somebody, you know, if they write or preach or teach and say something that's right and good, excellent, great. But you know, you, you can't follow them as a human being. You have to realize that they're only human, and, and you know they're going to make some mistakes, whether knowingly or unknowingly. They're going to make some mistakes in some of the things sometimes that they say. Uh, and even sometimes may not mean to do, to do that. The only one that never made mistakes in what he said was our Savior. And so, you know, we can follow people as long and as far as they follow the Lord. We'll come back to that. But he, he, he um, had to get on them for following men too closely. Chapter 4, we see a lack of respect for leadership there. And um, it's an interesting thing. He spends his time, though, when he writes to the Corinthians about their problems, he never mentions a pastor. He talks to them personally as people rather than as a pastor. Now, there are places in Scripture where Paul writes to pastors and straightens out some things, certainly. But here, the interesting thing is he doesn't write to the pastor about the problems. He writes to the people about it. So they had a lack of respect for, for uh, leadership. Chapter 5 uh, is a horrible thing that happened. Uh, there's a, something, some sexual immorality that happened. Chapter 5, verse 1, 2, and 3 tell us it was about uh, a man and basically his uh, stepmother. And just really not, not a good thing at all. And Paul has to rake them over the coals because they did not confront this man because of that. But there was a problem of sexual immorality in the church. Now, put a pin there. Next week when he writes, when we see where he writes in 2 Corinthians, they got this took care of. They, 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 um, they um, uh, got the, the issue resolved within the church. And he commends them for that. And he tells them, he said, you know, I hope to never come back with a heart of sorrow like this to have to do this 
ever in the in the future. He said, but you know, you got things right with with the man and with with uh, and within the church. You got everything right uh, between each other. And he said, that's a good thing. He commends them for that. But we'll see that in the second letter, Lord willing, next week. Chapter 6, there were some unresolved controversies and conflicts going on in the church. In fact, in chapter 6, apparently they were having a problem suing each other, taking each other to court. And Paul says, don't do that. You need to settle this among yourselves as believers. The world doesn't need to see that. Now, you know, that's um, we're so far removed from that in the 21st century because that happens all the time. Well, I say all the time, but it happens a lot, unfortunately, between Christians. Uh, but Paul says, you need to leave this in the church. Now, I'm not saying because it's, we're far removed from it, that, that it doesn't mean that, we, you know, that it's right to do it now. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's foreign to most people's thinking. But the scripture says here, he says, you need to straighten that out between each other. Don't take that and let the world see you know, the things that, you, that you're de- dealing with. The world doesn't need to see that. The world has enough stuff to give us a black eye as Christians, so to speak. And they don't need to see that. He said, don't take that to court. Now, again, we're removed from that, but Paul says, don't do that. Settle this between yourselves. Um, there are other things in this chapter, but that's basically the theme of that. Chapter 7, he deals with infidelity in marriage, uh, but he also talks about the, uh, the blessing of marriage, but he also deals with the problem of, of infidelity uh, within marriage and uh, deals with that in chapter 7. Chapter 8, he talks about the problem of abusing their Christian liberty. Now, here you, it's one of the shortest verses uh, chapters, maybe the shortest chapter in uh, 1 Corinthians, or might be a tie with chapter 13 as far as length. But in this very short chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he tells them to really watch yourselves when you, of, your, of the liberties you have as a believer. Now, what does that mean? Here you had a group there of people in Corinth. Some were Jews that were converted, like we saw Crispus, remember, uh, in, uh, in, from the book of Acts. When the church began, you had some Jewish uh, people that trusted Christ. Then you had Gentiles that trusted Christ. The Jews that trusted Christ knew the Old Testament law. They knew what the law had to say about certain diets and things, uh, you know, foods to eat and and things you were to not to do and all that as Jews. Now, of course, in Christ, they're not under that anymore. They're not under the law. They're, they're under grace. And then you had Gentiles. Many of them came from completely pagan backgrounds. Many of them came from idol worship and all kind of horrible things. They got saved. And so now... Uh, these believers coming from various backgrounds, some of them um, could, could do some things um, that their conscience wouldn't bother them, but another weaker believer, it would cause them to stumble. And Paul says, be careful of the freedoms of the liberties that you have. Don't flaunt them. If you have a liberty to do that, do that at home. Don't do that in front of a brother or sister in Christ. And there's a, there are a lot of things we could fill in the blank with that, and that would be a whole study sometime, and we don't have time to do that. But we'll come back to a verse about this, the importance of this in chapter 8 before we finish tonight. Uh, chapter 9, he warned them about mistreating the pastor, and he writes about that in there, about to treat the pastor right, and read through the uh, at least about the first half of chapter 9, he talks about that. Uh, chapter 10, misbehavior at church fellowship and gathering. He talked about that, and he gives an example from the Old Testament of um, how the children of Israel, how they rose up and they started, uh, remember they started worshiping the golden calf when Moses was way up there on the mountain, and Aaron and everybody's down there dancing around and worshiping the golden calf, and he, he, talks, he gives a warning of how many of them you know, basically died because of that. And then he talks about the, um, the importance before um, each other uh, fellowship together 
and the misbehavior they, they had in their fellowship of the things that they were free to eat or not free to eat. Remember some of those Jews that came from backgrounds where they didn't eat anything that was unclean in, in their diet, such as pork or you know, seafood. Yeah, these Gentiles, they didn't eat anything. <laughs> and, and so there, was, there were clashes there because of that. So he talks about that uh, not only in 1 Corinthians 8, but also 1 Corinthians 10. And he warns them about the, the misbehavior of that. Um, chapter 11 he talks about women in public worship in the first half or so of that chapter. And uh, then he talks about, um, in, in the uh, second half of that, or not quite half of that, he talks about behavior uh, during what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. And that picks up about verse 20-something there. Um, I quote, I read from it almost every time we have communion. Uh, starting about verse 20, he talks about uh, the Lord's Supper and how they were abusing uh, food and drink at the Lord's Supper. Chapter 12 changes gears a little bit, and uh, although he's still confronting them on some problems that they have, this be- these chapters become very similar to Romans 12, where there's a lot more um, where there's a lot more about spiritual growth. He's still confronting some problems, but now he's getting to some issues about spiritual growth. And for one thing, in chapter 12, he deals with spiritual gifts in the church. And a uh, parallel chapter to be Romans chapter 12. We mentioned that a little bit last week. And so 1 Corinthians 12 talks about uh, the gifts um, of the Spirit. And if you remember uh, earlier this year, uh, I had about five messages about spiritual gifts. And then about two month or two ago, I did the last of, the, of those, a sixth message about the gifts that are, um, have, that are no longer for today. They were then, and Paul talks about those gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. He talks about the gifts, some of the gifts that, were, that still are for now and some that were for then and are not for now. But chapter 12, he talks about spiritual gifts and um, some, some of those gifts they were, they were misusing and mentions that in there. Then you get to chapter 13, and we'll come back to this. Uh, a little bit later also. Chapter 13 is the great, what we call the love chapter. Uh, and so it mentions the, the word used in King James is the word charity. Put a pen in that. We'll come back to that. Uh, but it mentions the, the, um, the word charity, or we'll think of it now, as love in action. And Paul says, he goes into chapter 13, verse 1, says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. He just got through talking about gifts and and then talking about tongues. He said, Though I did all that and I did not have charity, God's love in action, I am become a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. So he says it all comes down to this is love in action. Love for God, love for my fellow believers. Um, That's what it all comes down to. So he spends that chapter talking about that in chapter 13. Then, after he mentions the importance of that, he comes back to the topic of tongues from 1 Corinthians 12 as one of the gifts and talks about the use and the misuses of tongues because even then, when tongues were still for that time, tongues were being misused, and so he uh, confronts that problem. Again, another problem he had to confront at the church at Corinth. Then in chapter 15... He gives clarity about the gospel and the resurrection. Chapter 15, many have called, just as many call chapter 13 the great love chapter, chapter 15 is the great chapter on the resurrection. Just about the whole chapter 
is concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ and even refers to uh, our resurrection one day at either death or, or alive at the rapture. And uh, we'll come to a passage about that in just a moment. And so he gives, uh, begins it with the clarity about the gospel where he says, this is the gospel, how that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and then he rose the third day. And then the rest of that chapter, he starts talking about the importance of the resurrection. Then you get to chapter 16, and he talks about ways they could show they'd received and applied the reproof that he just gave them in the other 15 chapters. He deals with that, and then the correction, the instruction that they needed in those chapters, uh, ways they could deal with that. And then also in chapter 16, he greets a lot of people. He greets um, Priscilla and Aquila and, and different ones in chapter 16 that he had... Um, got to know when he made his trip through Corinth on his missionary journey. So he writes this from his third missionary journey. He met them. Basically, the, the church was founded, but apparently very early, very early, they just started having all these problems, and he had to write and confront them about that. So let's go on the scenic route. Chapter 1 and verse 2. Uh, several places we want to look at in, in 1 Corinthians. And uh, keep in mind, although this church had a lot of problems. It probably had more problems than any other church to whom Paul wrote. Well, it was 16 chapters, so he had a lot to say. But look at chapter 1, verse 2. I love this verse. It's a great verse that every Christian should be familiar with. Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. The word sanctify means to, be, to set apart for God's purposes to be set apart. When and how are we sanctified? When we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. We're sanctified. We're set apart because we now belong to Him. Sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, after you read from verse 2 and the problems they had, you'd think, wait a minute, Paul. These are saints? Yeah, they're saints. But they're not saints because of their behavior. They're saints because who they were in Christ just as we are. God sees us as saints because we're in Christ. Saint also comes from the same word from when we get the word sanctified, set apart for God's use. So he says they're saints, um, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. So anywhere and everywhere we go throughout the world, if someone knows Christ as Savior, if they've trusted Him as Savior, they're a fellow saint in, in Christ. They're a fellow brother or sister in Christ. No matter where they're from, uh, where they live, if they know Christ as Savior, if they've trusted Him, they are part of God's family. Uh, it says, and then Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So uh, he talks about how in Christ God sees us that way. Chapter 3, we won't go there and spend a lot of time right now because... Um, we looked at this when we had a couple of, we, we looked at two messages on, on our prophecy study um, about the judgment seat of Christ. We looked at one about a month and a half ago or so, and then another one a couple of weeks ago, part two, we did about the judgment seat of Christ. But chapter 3, verse 11 to 15 uh, is a passage that talks about the um, works that are done that will be tested by fire. Uh, there's wood, hay, and stubble. Things will be done that will just burn up at the judgment seat of Christ that were, you know, of no consequence. But the things that we do for the Lord uh, will be like silver or like gold and precious stones. It will be that which lasts through the fire. And so chapter 3, verse 11 to 15 gives us a procedure of how things will be at the judgment seat of Christ. So um, that's found in that chapter. All right, uh, let's move on a little more. Chapter. Let's get way over to chapter 11. 
uh, skip over a good bit. We will come back to some more verses in, in this in First uh, Corinthians. But when you look at chapter 11, verse 20 to 34, it talks about what we know is communion or the Lord's Supper. And it says in, um, pick up at verse 20, when you, therefore, when you, uh, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. So apparently in those days, they would have meals and fellowship uh, together as they met for worship. They would meet there. To, we have to think about it. In those days, there, were pers- there was persecution from the Roman government. So they would gather together. Oftentimes, they'd have to do it, you know, um, Secretly, some, you know, not, they didn't have church buildings like we have. They'd have a designated house uh, or place where they met to worship together, and they would have a meal afterwards uh, as part of it. But look what he says in verse 21 For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper. One is hungry, that is, some are eating, but somebody else has said they're hungry. Another's drunken. In other words, he's, he's had, um, you know, plenty to drink, um, and one is. Um, or too much. And so he's saying there's division here because of that. Verse 22, what? Have you not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise you the church of God and shame them that have, uh, that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. He says, I'm not going to commend you for this because this is not the behavior that you should have in the body of Christ together as you meet together. Then he begins to talk about uh, the Lord uh, taking the bread and uh, drinking of the cup. And then he talks about that when we, um, when we partake of that, we're, we're examining ourselves personally as believers. And it's not to examine ourselves whether we're saved or not. You shouldn't partake of it if you're not saved. It's because to examine ourselves to, to think about what our Savior did for us. And if there's any un- unconfessed sin, to get that right with God. So chapter 11, he talks about observing the, the Lord's Supper. Chapter 12, verse 12 in the middle of his chapter about spiritual gifts, he says in verse 12, For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many, are one body, so also is Christ. So he's saying we're all individuals. We're all gifted differently. We all have different personalities. They came from different backgrounds. Some were Jews, some were Gentile. They were old, they were young. There were rich, there were those that were probably poor, and probably most of them were, but you know, there were some that may have had more money than others. And he says, um, you're meeting together, just remember, we're one body in Christ. We are we're one in Him, and uh, we're members of that one body, just as Christ is one, we are of His body. So chapter 12, verse 12, talks about the uh, importance of realizing as a believer, we're part of the body of Christ. Going back to chapter 13, that word charity is only found in King James. If you have a, another translation in English, it will not have it as charity, it will have it as love. But if you do a study, if you, if you take and read from the King James and do a study of that word charity, for one thing, it's only found in the New Testament. It's not found in the Old Testament. That's not an Old Testament word. It is the same word that's translated as love in English. But I think the translators did us a great favor by helping us to understand charity is just a little bit different from the word we'd use for love. And it's only written not only in the New Testament, but you only see it from Paul's letters forward. Peter mentions it once, I think, or twice. And I'm not sure if Jude does or not, but I know Peter does. And Paul has it in his letter, he uses the word charity. Charity is a kind of love that is possible for God's people toward him and others. 
Now, love is possible for even lost people. A mother, whether she's a Christian mother or not a Christian mother, a mother loves her child. She loves that child. A husband loves his wife. A wife loves her husband. Even if they're not Christians, they still know what love is about or should. And so as believers in Christ, we have the same love, but there's a love uh, that God gives to his people that is different from the world. Because we see God different from an unsaved per- what an unsaved person would see God. We see Jesus different than what an unsaved person would see Jesus. And we should see brothers and sisters in Christ different than the way we see the world or the way the world sees us. And so when you read through there, for example, look at, um, pick up at verse, uh, we, we read verse 1 a while ago, if I have not charity, if I have the tongues, of, able to speak with the tongues of men, and have not charity, I'm making noise, he says. Uh, verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Well, he describes charity, God's kind of love toward God and others, starting in verse 4, and it goes down to verse number 8, and he mentions um, several things there. Charity suffered, is long-suffering. It uh, doesn't have a short fuse, and it is long-suffering in the, with the faults of others. It's kind. It does not envy, verse 4. It does not vaunt itself. It's not puffed up or proud. Um, verse 6, rejoices in the truth. And so God's people, this should be a characteristic of all of God's people, a special love, farther, much farther, much stronger than a love that the world has. They may be able to love, but not like God's people. The Bible tells us in the book of um, Galatians, that the fruit of the Spirit is love. He produces love in the believer. And so charity is a, is a special word. It's a giving. It's a love in action. It's not a love that takes all the time. It's a love that gives and sacrifices. In fact, it says there in verse, um, in verse number three, though even if I gave my body to be burned and didn't have that kind of, char- that kind of love, the charity, it would profit me nothing. And so, you know, who would give their body to be burned for somebody if they didn't love them? Back in the, um, especially in the, what they call the uh, Middle Ages, really the Dark Ages, when Christians were being persecuted, uh, many of them were put to death that way. They burned them to death. And so who would do that if they didn't have a kind of love that the world doesn't have? A love for God and love for other people. Anyway, I've spent a lot of time on there. And uh, I've actually got a study I've started on that, and i got a lot more work to do on that. We may look at that Wednesday nights in the future. Chapter 13, verse 12. I love this verse because as far as heaven goes, there are a lot of things we may not understand about heaven, and we don't. But there's one thing we know. Look at verse 12, chapter 13. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I be known even as I also am known. As also I am known. So the things in this life that we don't know that God one day wants us to know, we will know. We'll know just as we are known. Just as well as you know yourself, you'll know, you'll, you'll know others that well. You'll know, I believe, in heaven um, at some point. Maybe it's in the judgment seat of Christ. I don't know. It may be later on. Maybe when we're just there worshiping him or whatever we're doing or here in the millennial reign with him. I believe all the things, all the questions we've ever had ever in our life are going to be answered. Because it says we'll know as we are known. And all the questions of, Lord, why did this happen? Why did this happen then? Why did this happen to me? 
Why this happened to my family? Why this happened to my parents? Why this happened to my child? Why did this happen to my loved one? Why did this happen, um, this, this horrible thing? Why did it happen? I believe we'll know all the answers. Because when we get to heaven, I heard one preacher say it this way a year or two ago, and it, it really made sense to me. When we get to heaven and we stand before God, we will see our life in perfect context. So the things that happened to us, the reason they happened, we'll know why that happened. We'll know that God saw it happen. And if he chose not to stop it, then he had to have a purpose for it. Because, you know, he could stop a lot of things that happened to us, and we wonder. But he had a purpose for it. And one day in eternity, we'll see that in its fullness. We'll be able to see every aspect of it. The other people that were involved, whatever else was involved, we'll see all of that and it'll make perfect sense. All the pieces of the puzzle will come together. And so I believe that one verse covers a lot of things for us to know that there will be a time where we'll know even as we are known. We'll know all about it. The old song goes by and by. I like that old song. Chapter 15, verse 3 and 4, Paul defines, makes very clear the gospel. He says in another place that the gospel was not given to him by men. It was given to him by Jesus Christ. And so when he got saved, uh, we find out in the book of Galatians that he spent some time personally with the Lord. We'll get to that in Galatians. But when he did, Jesus gave him directly the gospel as he did that. Jesus uh, appeared to him in, uh, for a period of time and gave him the gospel. And Paul says, this is, I've delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that that was going to happen, they all happened. They were fulfilled just as the scripture said they would. And that is the gospel, not anything else. We can't add to it or take from it. He had to die for us. We couldn't die for ourselves to pay our sin debt. He had to do that. He had to be buried for three days proving he was dead. And then he rose from the dead to assure us of our eternal security in Christ once we're saved because we trust Christ. So the gospel is found there. Chapter 15, verse 6, the Bible says, He was seen in His glorified body by over 500 people at one time. And so some of the critics throughout history would try to disprove Jesus' resurrection. 500 people cannot have a hallucination that's the same. They all saw him resurrected. They saw him in his resurrected body. And uh, then he says others too that saw him besides those, but of over 500 at one time, Paul says. So um, next we see in chapter 15, we've, uh, I had a message about this a while back. Now we'll look at a little bit about the rapture, chapter 15, starting at verse 51. Now remember chapter 15 is the great resurrection chapter. It begins with the resurrection of Jesus it talks about the importance of the resurrection and our faith. And it also mentions a little bit about our resurrection one day. And that's what we know is the rapture. Chapter 15, starting at verse 51. I won't read the whole thing. Behold, I show you a mystery. It's a mystery because mysteries in the New Testament were not revealed in the Old Testament. The rapture wasn't revealed because there was no church uh, prophesied in the Old Testament. Um, that was not revealed until the New Testament. And so... Um, it's, it's a mystery because it was not revealed then. Now, we can look back now and see things in the Old Testament that might have hinted towards it, but it wasn't revealed as being something because the church wasn't mentioned. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, 
but we shall all be changed. I think I mentioned to you before, I saw that in a nursery a long time ago uh, in another church. But we shall all be changed. You can laugh on that later. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And then he goes to say that this corruptible has to put on in, in, uh, incorruption and the mortal has to put on immortality. The corruptible, that is the believers that are living when the rapture happens. These bodies are corruptible. They're, they corrupt. They're getting older every day. They're getting weaker every day. We may, some days we may f- not feel it. <laughs> some days we may feel it a lot. But this corruptible must put on incorruption. The mortal, this, that which is mortal, subject to death, mortal, uh, must put on immortality. That is, uh, the dead in Christ will be given a brand new body. And they'll become immortal and we'll become also immortal, but the corruption will end. We'll have a new body. Um, and it shall be brought, brought to pass the, the saying that is written, verse 54, O uh, death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? He's quoting from the Old Testament. And then um, he says, thanks be to God which gives us the victory. But verse 58, every time you see Paul mention or refer to the rapture in the New Testament, whether it's in a section like this, or just one or two verses. Every time it's always mentioned somewhere right close by or in the same passage, a verse about serving the Lord. Look what he says in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, because the Lord's coming back and he's going to take us to be with him. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So Paul assures us and um, another passage uh, about that is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 18, where Paul says, uh, uh, it tells us the same thing, we shall be changed, uh, tells us that we'll, uh, the dead in Christ will rise first, we which are alive and will be caught up together in the, in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21, um, Paul echoes what he says in here about a new body. We'll have a new body, it says, will be changed like to his body. Coming to a check engine. We've been on the scenic route and we've been riding through and looking at some stuff. Well, your check engine light ever come on? You know, you got to get something checked out, right? I had mine happen twice in the last couple of weeks and I'm just hoping it was just trashing the, in the fuel line because it did clear up. But the check engine comes light on, uh, light comes on or service engine soon or something like that comes on. So let's do that. Let's check engine. What was going on with these Corinthians? Why were they having all these problems? What was it? What was the main reason that Paul had to to correct these problems and tell them, "Look, you know, you need to get this straightened out with the Lord. You're believers, and you need to get these things straightened out." Go with me to uh, chapter three. Chapter three. This is the main problem had to deal with. You had these believers; they were Christians. Now, don't get me wrong; they're believers. But he had to, had to address these problems as believers because they were carnal believers. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, and then we're going to look at this a little bit. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. So you see right off a contrast between spiritual and carnal. So there's a contrast there. So let's look and see what this is about. Verse 2, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. So there's a contrast, spiritual carnal. Now, <clears throat> spiritually, they weren't able to take spiritual meat, stronger stuff. They had to have milk, weaker stuff. Verse 2, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. For ye are yet carnal, he said it again. 
Whereas there's um, um, among you envying, strife, and divisions, are you not carnal? He said it again, and walk as men. He gives an example. While one saith, I'm of Paul, another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? We read that in chapter 1, remember when we talked about the division that was between them? So Paul says, look, you've got a problem as believers, you're carnal. The word carnal means, same word as fleshly. The word carnal that word carn or carne is found in several languages. You can see it in the Greek language. You can see it in um, uh, even in um, uh, Spanish. You see, look, look on a menu and you'll see something with carne or something there. It's talking about meat or flesh. What he's saying is, is they were controlled by their flesh, their old sin nature. They were being controlled by the sin nature. And so all these problems were, sp- were sprouting up everywhere because they weren't being spiritual. They weren't allowing the Holy Spirit to control them. So these problems were coming up because they were walking in the flesh. They were living carnally. And that's the difference there. They were believers. Yes, they were. But you had those that are spiritual. doesn't mean they're better than anybody else. It means they were doing what they could to walk in the Spirit, according to God's Word, according to the leadership of His Spirit. But there were those who were just completely disregarding it and just living by their old sin nature. Go to chapter 5 of Galatians, if you will. Galatians 5. And we'll see him address this with the, with the believers at Corinth somewhat. Or excuse me, at Galatia somewhat. Galatians 5, verse 17 through verse... Uh, I'll tell you what, back up, I put 17. Look at verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit, be a spiritual Christian, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh, a carnal Christian. All right, verse 17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit. We use the word lust in several different ways, and it's found different ways in the Bible. There's the obvious lust of a desire for a person or a thing, even not just people, but desire for something else. It's a wrong desire or maybe a right desire for the wrong thing. But that's what we usually often use the word lust. But the word lust means that it's something that... Um, that, that is contrary. It goes against another desire. So look at it again with that, with that definition. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit. That is, there's a desire within the Christian that the Holy Spirit have His way in our life and guide us and direct us. And the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one or the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, next few verses he begins to list some uh, works of the flesh, and the ones he mentioned in 1 Corinthians there are found here. He talked about the, um, the division that was among them and the strife that was among them. That's in verse number 20. So he lists a list of things that, that are evident when, when people are walking in the flesh and not in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he tells them, your, your problem is, you're, you're carnal believers, you're not growing in grace. You're not growing uh, in the Word. And because of that, he says, um, I couldn't speak unto you as spiritual, but as in the carnal. So the whole letter, he has to write and correct them about things that they're doing or shouldn't be doing. All right, let's go to the tune-up. We went to our, we went to our uh, check engine. So let's go to our tune-up and look at some verses. Uh, chapter 1, verse 10, he gives the cure for their division. Uh, we, we saw where they were being divisive amongst each other. Look at verse 10. Chapter 1, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, 
and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same ju- judgment. So their mind, the th- the, their thinking, and their words that they speak to speak the same things, words that would be beneficial and helpful to each other and words that would be uh, that would build each other up. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean it have to always be flowery words. Sometimes they have to be words of correction, certainly. But he said the words that will build up one another and be uh, of the same mind, get on board, get, you know, be the same mind together. And he gives them the cure for their division. Chapter 2, verse 13, he tells us this is the key to understanding Scripture. Um, he tells us in the previous verses that the Holy Spirit is the one who searches our heart and mind. Look at verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So the way you understand Scripture is simply let Scripture be its own interpreter, its own commentary. God gives people that write books. Don't get me wrong. I've got a lot of good books in my study. Um, but they're written by human beings, and somewhere along the line, they're going to miss something, or they may, you know, uh, make a mistake somewhere, or it's going to be incomplete. They may not know everything about everything, just like I don't, or no one else does. But he says, compare spiritual things with spiritual. So when you study scripture, uh, the best interpreter, the best commentary on scripture is scripture. In fact, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit Himself is the interpreter. Um, it, it, it makes that clear. So. That's the key to understanding Scripture. It's a spiritual book, and the Holy Spirit is the one who enlightens us and and illuminates and and gives us God's truth. Chapter 6, verse 19 to 20, uh, and it's it's a little over a third of the way through the book. It's not quite halfway by any means. But Paul gives them something else they need to understand as believers. He tells them, don't you realize, what know you not, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Uh, which you have of God, and you're not your own. Then he says in verse 20, we're bought with a price. And so we're to glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which are God's. So he reminds them, look, you're not your own. Uh, believers there at Corinth, you're not your own. You belong to the Lord Jesus. And the Holy Spirit lives within you. Chapter, how in the world did I do that? How do you get 8, 19 to 13? That don't work. I think that's supposed to be 8, 9 to 13. Um, He talks about um, putting our liberty in check as believers. Look at verse, um, I think I wanted just verse 9. I don't know where that 19 come from. That was a keystroke error. Uh, Verse 9, but take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. So he says we're, we're to put our freedoms, our liberties in check with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to not let it become a stumbling block. He mentions the same thing to the believers at Rome in chapter 14 and says we're not to be a stumbling block before each other. And then chapter 9, verse 23 to 27, uh, a couple of Sundays ago I preached um, a second message on the generosity of Christ, and I talked about the rewards that we can um, receive as a believer. And one of them is called an incorruptible crown. Cl- Mm. incorruptible crown in verse 25. It's one that does not corrupt and it's one that as a believer in Jesus Christ, we can win that by serving the Lord and being faithful. And uh, Paul talks about that in those verses of winning an incorruptible crown. Chapter 11. This is what I referred to earlier. Verse 1. Paul says this to them. Be ye followers of me. He didn't put a period there. Even as I also am of Christ. Jesus told the, the disciples, or, or two of them, two brothers, 
he was, he was talking to John, James and John, or was it, it might have been Peter and Andrew, where he says to them, he says, um, come after me, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. If I'm following Christ, follow me. So the Lord gives us people to look up to. When you're a young believer, you need that. I, I think back in my life, in my younger, younger years as a believer, the people I looked up to that helped me in my spiritual growth. And uh, for, you know, for many years, and there's still people I look up to and, and appreciate them. And so as they're following the Lord, follow them as long as they're going that direction. Um, and follow, follow them as believers in Christ, as a, as a, as a mentor towards you. Chapter 11, verse 31 and 32, that's, we looked at the Lord's Supper a while ago and talked about it. And so the Bible tells us we're to judge ourselves first. He said, if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And he's talking about the communion of the Lord's Supper there. Chapter 14, verse 33 and verse 40 give two uh, very important truths about where he's talking to them about the problem of tongues being misused. But the same, but the truth is found in these two verses apply to anything in the, in the church's believers. Chapter 14, verse 33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Um, then verse 40, Let all things be done decently and in order. So um, that's the way... Uh, Paul said the church should operate. And of course, they were having a problem of you know, misusing tongues. That's what he had to address in that chapter. But still, those truths are, very, uh, are, are there for the church, for other things, applies in other ways. Chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, Paul mentions giving. And this is one of the verses, one of the passages when we talk about as a as churches, we're to, you know, we take up a, an offering on Sunday. Now, we use an offering box. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with people, you know, coming down the aisle and taking. There's nothing wrong with taking a plate. There's nothing, scripture doesn't address either one of those. It doesn't say this is the way you do it. You have four people go down each aisle and take up collection. Nothing wrong with it, but it's not in the scripture. An offering box is not in the scripture. Closest thing to that offering box would be, remember when Jesus talked about the widow they gave the mites, and there was that place right there at the temple. And so, you know, uh, but that's not a proof text for an offering box. When we started, we were the busy box, and meeting there, it wasn't very practical to have people take up an offering, not the way we were sitting. So we started an offering box. One or two of you were there, and you remember we did that. We started an offering box, and, and so we use the same principle here. There's nothing in Scripture that says do this or don't do that. Personally, I like an offering box. Um, I like that people can give when they want to and not have to feel pressured by people watching them. And people do that. I mean, when I come in on Sunday morning uh, for Sunday school, I try to remember if I don't forget. I try to first thing, I try to remember to, to put the, you know, my offering that I give in there. I try to put it in there. And so I like that. I think that's the way to do it. Plus, you have to understand, if you're sitting in a church somewhere and you watch uh, the offering, you know, people taking up offering, you watch, oh, that person didn't give. They didn't put anything in there. Well, they may not get paid but once a month. And they may have already given for that month. You know, may have already, what we use the word tithe off of that. So um, Paul says in chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him. There be no gatherings when I come. So, in the next book, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about giving uh, uh, in more detail. 
And um, it's what, we, what, what Paul refers to as grace giving. But he says here together. So that's how it kind of got started on the first day of the week on Sunday when you worship to do that. But he said gather that because Paul took what they gave. They didn't have to pay for a church building. They didn't have to pay <laughs> pay for lights. They didn't have any. Uh, so oil they'd go into or, or maybe candles. And so, you know, they didn't have those bills to pay. Um, and so what they would do is they would take a collection. They would give to other brothers and sisters in need, very similar to our, our mission ministry and our benevolent, the way we, way we give to others in need. And so very similar to that. But yet they didn't, they didn't have to, you know, pay the bills like you do in a church these days. So um, when we take that up, yes, we have missions and, and other ways we give to people. But, you know, the money goes for the, the expenditures of the church itself. Uh, thank the Lord pays my salary. It, it it pays for our bills, and we save up to use for when we when we need it, and hopefully to buy you know to pay for a a, a sanctuary one day. Oh my goodness, I need to move. But anyway, it talks about the uh, taking up the offering there in chapter sixteen. Jesus is referred to in chapter one, verse seven and eight, and other places in First Corinthians as our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter one, verse nine, nine Jesus Christ our Lord after the resurrection. You'll see in Acts, talking about Jesus our Lord, and then Paul's letters over and over, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, when Jesus was on earth, there were times that would, you know, there would be someone to worship him. They'd say, My. In fact, when, remember when Thomas saw him that next Sunday? He'd missed the first meeting. <laughs> he missed church that Sunday. So the next Sunday, they, they were together, and um, he saw Jesus. He said, my Lord and my God. So after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, it's when the title Lord is seen throughout Paul's letters. And so we see that um, several times in 1 Corinthians, but I just mentioned those two. But in chapter 15, in verse 45, remember this is the great chapter about resurrection. And it says this, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last man, Adam or excuse me, the last Adam, not the last man, but the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. That's referring to the Lord Jesus. So he's called the last Adam. Adam was created. He had the world at his feet. He was, he was a king because God told him, he said, you have dominion. He was a king. You don't see a crown on his head, but he was a king in the sense he had dominion over everything. But he lost that crown when he sinned. Jesus, when he comes, he comes to be the last Adam, because one day he'll get it all. He'll be over the kingdom of God, over the kingdom of uh, kingdom of God, and the kingdom of heaven, and he'll have it all, and he will all be crowned for all those. So he's called the last Adam, where the first one blew it. Jesus certainly did not and will not. Some great verses to memorize. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us who are saved it is the power of God. Chapter one, verse eighteen, and then the one I gave you about the body being the temple of the Holy Ghost. Uh, and that we're not our own, we're bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 is a great verse for facing temptation. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not suffer to allow you to be tempted above that which you're able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. And then um, chapter 16, verse 22, we see the one and only time in Scripture the word Maranatha is found. It means that our Lord is coming back. And it's found in chapter 16, verse 22. Paul says, those who do not look for our Lord return, let him be anathema. That's a rough word. It means let him be accursed. But then he says, um, Maranatha, our Lord cometh. So um, close out with uh, well, 1 Corinthians there. All right. That's a lot in that one. Any questions or any input or anything, First Corinthians tonight.
So Lord willing, next week, yes, Sharon? Um, Paul being a tent maker. Tent maker. So when he, before he got saved, was it, wasn't he a religious leader? Did he get saved? He was. He was. Now that I don't know. I'm not sure about that. I, I know he was persecuting believers. Uh, apparently he was taught to mend tents from an early age is my guess. But when he went on that tear to persecute the church, I really don't know. That's a good question. I don't know about that. I was just wondering if he learned how to make tents after he got saved because he couldn't. It's possible. He might have. Scripture doesn't say it's possible, but it's maybe something he learned growing up too. I really don't know. Uh, very possible. Usually he was, he was Jewish, and usually Jewish young men learned the trade that their father had. So that's a possibility too. Could be. Anything else? Lord willing, next week we'll go into 2 Corinthians and we'll see how Paul writes to them and he comforts them where they need it and commends them for you know, getting some of those problems straightened out. And it's a very encouraging letter. Most personal letter that Paul wrote. And it's 13 chapters. It's also, um, and I'll probably put that in the, in the uh, notes, that it's also what I've heard several preachers call the man, biblical manual for ministry. Um, there are others in the Bible, too, that are, are, are definitely, but it talks about, I'm talking about personal ministry to, for a pastor to his people because there's some great stuff in there about personal ministry in 2 Corinthians. And I love it. Great book. Looking forward to that. Okay, let's stand and close in prayer, and we'll dismiss tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the time to be in your word tonight. There's a lot to look at, and what a great book, and a lot that you um, used, Paul, to correct among your people. And we know, Lord, we know we're all human. We all make mistakes. We're all imperfect. And there are times where we unfortunately are not walking in the spirit. We're not walking in obedience. And um, there are times you correct us and we thank you for your correction in our life. And so I pray, Lord, that you'll help us as we read through 1 Corinthians. We'll see those places, but we'll also see those great verses we closed with, uh, verses that um, will help us in our daily walk and encourage us in growing in grace. I pray, Lord, that you'll... Um, Keep us safe as we leave from here tonight, Lord, and watch over us throughout the remainder of the week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.